Welcome to Musicians vs. the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been discussed in music school. I am your host, pianist Christine Smith. On February 24th, 2022, Russian forces launched an invasion into Ukraine, sending feelings of shock across the world. That weekend, Saturday Night Live featured a Ukrainian chorus singing Pray for Ukraine. The message of support for Ukrainian people was clear. Many other musicians and musical organizations, excited to come back from a two-year pandemic performing drought, found themselves in a predicament. If they performed Russian music or featured Russian performers, would they be sending the same message of support, but only this time for Russia? Or can politics and music be completely separated? The intertwining of classical music and politics is not a new issue. Here with his take on the subject is Juilliard-trained musician and Harvard-trained historian Jonathan Rosenberg. Jonathan is a professor of history at Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center, where he teaches 20th century U.S. history. His book, Dangerous Melodies, Classical Music in America from the Great War Through the Cold War, explores this topic in depth. And I'm so happy to have him here with me today to share his insights on this very important topic. So Jonathan, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Musicians Versus the World. It's a great pleasure to be here, Christine. Thank you for asking me to join you. Well, I'm so grateful that you're here today. So just to jump into it, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that musicians are right to be worried about this? Well, I think that the question of music and politics is one that has long been a subject for concern and consideration. And Dangerous Melodies was published a couple of years ago. I, it was obviously a, a history which explored that subject. I didn't think that it would yet again become so uh, so relevant. Um, and it's certainly something that I think uh, musicians and people involved in, in the arts will want to be thinking about. The, the, the issue of Valery Gergiev, of course, and his relationship with Putin has become has been scrutinized quite carefully and closely, in fact, over a number of years, but particularly in recent weeks. And I think it's the kind of issue that we need to give some thought to and that musicians and artists generally might wish to think about. It certainly is, um, as I said, something that has come to the fore in recent weeks. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate your book. I've been reading it and it's just fascinating. And it's what I find fascinating is how history seems to repeat itself. I think there's that quote, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't exactly repeat itself, but it sure rhymes. Yeah. And I see so many of the similar sort of fears today occur that happened in World War One, World War Two. A lot of the same fears and kind of nationalistic feelings seem to be happening. What are your thoughts about that? Yes, that is, that's the case. In fact, when this, after the... Uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and the issue with Gergiev came up again. Uh, I had a number of people began to get in touch with me and say, hey, this reminds me of the stuff you talked about in your book. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> and um, so you're not alone in that. Um, you know, I, I think that there certainly are any number of historical antecedents for what we're seeing now with, with the case of Gergiev and Putin. We've seen this particularly in the history of uh, classical music in the United States in the 20th century. We saw similar things arise, which we can talk about during the First World War. We saw similar things arise during the 1930s and, and after World War II as well, where people have been uh, genuinely concerned and exercised and distressed by the positions 
taken by musicians, musicians and, and artists, um, with respect to their relationships with, uh, let's call them toxic regimes, which I think is the case here with Gergiev. So this is, in a certain sense, there's nothing new under the sun here, although obviously the particulars are somewhat different. If we want to try to get a better handle on what's going on with Gergiev, and, and there are others, Anna Netrebko, for example, and her relationship with Putin, mm-hmm. I do think there are, um, if, if not lessons to be drawn from history, I think we can uh, get gain a deeper understanding of the present by looking at some of these things that happened in the past uh, with respect to the relationship between art and more specifically music and politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think maybe in World War I, it went a little bit far from just from your book. Like Indeed. it went Indeed to the point did. where yes. they were asking musicians to almost completely give up their German citizenship in order to keep their freedom and things. Yes. And I don't think that we're quite to that point. No, but. no, I don't. We're not to that point in yeah. the United States, you know, the United States uh, at this point, certainly with respect to what's going on in in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, during the First World War, if you'd like me to expand on that, I can. I would, yes. Sure. Um, during World War One in the United States, putting music and the arts aside for the moment, there was a, a, a wave of anti-German sentiment in the country that was really quite vicious and ferocious. Um, mm-hmm. This happened, if I can play professor for a moment, uh, World War I began in, in the summer of 1914. The United States did not enter the war until 1917, the spring of 1917. And in that interim period when the United States was neutral, we, we really don't see much anti-German sentiment in the United States. But once the country entered the war, this ferocious anti-German sentiment largely whipped up by the U.S. government, had uh, a tremendously uh, um, deleterious effect on American society. Uh, There were uh, burnings of German books, German language books in the United States. They were removed from shelves and there were book burnings in the country. Germans were tarred and feathered. The German language stopped, was no longer taught in schools. In one horrible case, a, a German laborer was lynched in a small Illinois town. So throughout the country, there was, as I said, a wave of ferocious anti-German sentiment, and that washed over into the world of classical music. The world of classical music in late 19th century, early 20th century America was very much a kind of Germanic world. The repertoire was was largely German. Musician, large numbers of musicians were German immigrants or of German heritage, conductors especially. And in in fact, orchestra rehearsals were conducted in the German language in this period. Hmm. So the world of classical music was was very much, as I said, a German world. And this anti-German sentiment that washed over the country sort of also washed over the world of classical music. German uh, music, some of it was banned in the United States. German musicians were you know, lost their jobs. They were dismissed. There were some famous, or I should say infamous, incarcerations of German, uh, important German musical figures in the United States, one of whom was Karl Muck, another was a man named Ernst Kunwald. These were conductors Muck conducted the Boston Symphony. Kunwald conducted the uh, Cincinnati Symphony. They were sent to uh, an internment camp, actually in 
uh, Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. Yep, not too far. Uh, where along with thousands of other so-called en- enemy aliens, they were interned for the duration of the war and ultimately deported. Mm-hmm. So the world of classical music uh, during World War One was really uh, very, very deeply and profoundly affected by this xenophobia, by this anti-German sentiment. Yes, we we don't see anything like that at the moment in the United States, and I don't expect that we will. Uh, But again, the questions about whether German music should be ought to be played, occurred during World War I, whether German musicians should be allowed to continue performing. That certainly was a huge issue during the First World War. So we see, in a certain sense, echoes of that in some of the questions that pertain, say, to Gergiev. Mm -hmm. You know, Gergiev was, um, I guess, the last week of February, he was supposed to come to New York with the Vienna Philharmonic to conduct three concerts. Uh, And that, I think, on the Wednesday or Thursday before those weekend concerts, it was announced that he would, in fact, not be conducting and he would not be participating in the Vienna Philharmonic's concerts in the United States. And he also uh, was was ultimately uh, dismissed from a number of positions in Europe. So we're seeing, right. you know, to some extent, some of this, the same sort of thing that we experienced during the, the First World War, albeit certainly not as quite as uh, ferociously as happened earlier. Right, right. Well, and then Putin had something to say about that. Yes. Yes. On March 23rd, um, Russian President Vladimir Putin accused the West of trying to, quote unquote, cancel Russian culture. And his quote is, today they are trying to cancel a whole thousand year culture, our people. I'm talking about the gradual discrimination against everything linked to Russia. And I thought that his verbiage and that he used cancel culture and he used all of these things, you could see that he was trying to kind of almost use this as propaganda and to drum up supporters. Yes. But yeah, he's accusing the West of doing the exact same thing now. Right. I, I do think it it bears emphasizing that, and perhaps it's not surprising, that one cannot take Putin at his word with this Right. With this assessment, not surprisingly, I think what he says is wildly inaccurate, as is true of virtually everything else he says these days. And um, in the case of so-called cancel culture, which is an interesting, I guess, term that he's appropriating from the United States. Yeah. Um, that really hasn't happened to any great extent here in this country. As far as I know, there has been no cancellation of Russian pieces of music or continuing major American arts institutions, opera companies, symphony orchestras are continuing to program and play Russian music, which is which they certainly should. So that is not happening to any great extent. Okay, yes, Valery Gergiev is not going to be allowed was not allowed to perform in in New York uh, with the Vienna Philharmonic and he was dismissed from a number of positions that he held in Europe. But in terms of canceling products of Russian culture, whether literature or music, it's simply, at least in the United States, not happening. And I don't really think it's happening very much at all in in Europe, although I'm less well acquainted with that. But in this country, I think there has been very much a, a you know, a, a conscious decision to continue to play Russian music. And, and we should all continue, I think, to to listen to and love Russian music as we always have. I myself have in some sense, probably just at home, listen to more of it in recent weeks, uh, in a certain sense, just to remind myself of the glories of, of Russian culture, despite the fact that what is happening in Ukraine is so 
awful and horrendous and, and disturbing. You know, that that should not, I don't think, affect our willingness to listen to Shostakovich or Prokofiev or Borodine or Tchaikovsky or any of the other composers uh, who who uh, many of us love. So mm-hmm. uh, as far as Putin's assessment of the situation, it is not surprisingly, uh, uh, I think, entirely inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And you wrote an op-ed for the LA Times, yes. you drew some sharp contrast between what's happening with Gergiev and with, you know, with Mook and the and the German conductors that mm-hmm. were interned in an internment camp. And so yes. what are some of the differences you see between those two? They yes. are vastly different. Very much so. Um, well, for one thing, I, I think that the, the truly salient point here is that if we're trying to understand this in the context of the relationship between music and politics, mm-hmm. is that uh, Valery Gergiev over many years now, has basically, I suppose you could say, broken down any wall that might separate music from politics. There has been in his uh, professional life no separation whatsoever between music and politics. And and this is an important distinction from some of what happened, say, in the United States. In the case of Gergiev, over many years, he has been uh, an ardent, a fervent supporter of of. Uh, not only Vladimir Putin, but Putin's policies. Uh, and, and I can cite for you, I mentioned some of this in the LA Times mm-hmm. piece. There are countless examples of, of Gergiev's willingness to publicly support Putin and Putinism, including in 2012, he actually made, and you can watch it on YouTube, a campaign video for Vladimir Putin as Putin was, uh, I guess you could say, running for office uh, yet again. He, he was... Um, you know, Gergiev made a, a campaign video for him. And on a number of other occasions, Gergiev has quite publicly uh, lent support to Putin's policies. He supported in 2014, Gergiev uh, signed a letter supporting Putin's annexation of Crimea. Uh, in 2016, Gergiev conducted a concert in Palmyra, Syria, shortly after Russian airstrikes there, brutal Russian airstrikes. Gergiev was involved in that by conducting a concert. And there are a number of other instances where Gergiev has um, quite publicly, through, through, through his conducting activities, made clear that he supports uh, what Putin has done. So in that sense, there is no, in the way Gergiev, if I may use the phrase, conducted himself, there is no um, uh, separation between the world of politics and the world of music. In the case of these musicians in the United States, these conductors, particularly during World War I, Karl Muck and Ernst Kunwald, Muck was a German, Kunwald was Austrian, they did not in, in any sort of public way take a stance on the war. You know, they they were in the United States. The United States went to war with Germany and with Austria-Hungary. And they were not in any way um, partisans, at least in a public sense, with respect to that conflict. In private, I'm, I think their attitudes are probably more questionable, and they probably you know, undoubtedly supported Germany and, 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 uh, against the United States. But they mm-hmm. certainly made no public they did not go on the record publicly to do that. So I think that the circumstances are are fundamentally different. There is no question that over a number of years, as I said, Gergiev has been an ardent supporter of Putin. And when asked to comment in recent days, recent weeks, on where he stands on the invasion of Ukraine, Gergiev has remained, uh, let's say, scrupulously silent on the matter. And that it, it's, it is that, if as much as anything, which has gotten him into hot water. He's refused to come out and speak 
against this this invasion. That's that has been in in the end uh, the the essence of the problem is insofar as his position is concerned. Mm-hmm. And so you're thinking is that because he has a history of supporting Putin and because he hasn't denounced the invasion that it's fair to connect his politics with his musical career because he kind of put himself in that situation himself? Well, yeah. I mean, Gergiev cannot credibly make the case that politics and music are separate because he has lived his professional life in such a way as to make clear that he sees no separation between the two. If you are making a campaign video in support of Vladimir Putin and you do so as a Russian artist, which Gergiev is and a, and a distinguished one, mm-hmm. you are making quite clear that you, um, you are entering the realm of politics, you know, quite explicitly. There's, there's no way around that. And by conducting all of these concerts at these, in these very questionable situations and signing, signing uh, open letters in support of inv- the invasion of Crimea and so forth, he is, he is entering the, the, the public sphere. He's entering the, the, the domain of politics. Mm-hmm. He is not in any way attempting to keep himself um, separate and apart from that domain. Hence uh, the problem. And, and, and I, thought, I also think it makes it completely reasonable mm-hmm. to want to hear what he has to say about what's going on now. I mean, if, if he had remained silent for all these years, it might be less reasonable to ask him what he thinks now. But for many years, he has weighed in on virtually every, all of the important, particularly foreign policy or military decisions Putin has made. Gergiev has weighed in. Why isn't he weighing in now? Right. That, that's the question. And clearly he's not, I think it's fairly clear that he's not going to weigh in now. And that is why he has been uh, dismissed from these various positions in Europe. And he has been dismissed uh, from many of them. He was the conductor of the Munich Philharmonic. They got rid of him. He wasn't allowed to come here with the Vienna Philharmonic. He was dismissed from his relationship with uh, La Scala in Milan. He had a relationship with the Rotterdam Philharmonic. Um, the Edinburgh Festival, all of these things became highly problematic precisely because he was really such a political figure over the last uh, number of years and at the moment has remained silent in the face of this uh, gross transgression of international law, which his country Mm -hmm. has uh, engaged in. Yeah. And to a lesser extent, I see musicians in America kind of dipping their toes into politics. We saw a lot with the election cycle. A lot of them are putting themselves out there telling people to vote or, um, and many, I think with social media, people are asking them and almost forcing them to expose their political views and political thoughts. And I'm wondering, do you think that's fair or should we just let musicians just let the music speak for itself? I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable question. You know, I think that, um, yeah, I don't think musicians need to feel any uh, strong impulse to weigh in on political matters if they wish to not to do so. I think that's that's perfectly fine. Um, uh, certainly, American musicians, if they if they don't wish to comment, you know, they certainly have every right to remain on the sidelines. Uh, one would like to think, with I don't know, some of the great issues of the day in the United States, maybe domestic issues, questions about race relations and so forth. One would look to prominent people to weigh in in a constructive and helpful way, Mm -hmm. but they certainly oughtn't to feel compelled to do that. But if they begin to do it, if if they enter the political sphere or the public sphere, then I think people will come to expect them to weigh in and they will want to know what they think about particular issues. 
if they choose to remain on the sidelines, I suppose, you know, that's they're well within their rights to do so. Mm-hmm. But again, one would like to think that on, as I said, questions of great domestic importance and even foreign policy issues, if musicians as prominent people wish to weigh in, we, we might well wish to hear what they have to say. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think they're obligated to do so, however. Well, and it makes sense because music tends to reflect the people at the time. And so it seems it seems somewhat natural for music to be reflecting kind of the the temperature of yes. what is happening in the world. And so I can see how it's very easy for politics because that also reflects the temperature of the world, how those two come together so much. Mm-hmm. And there are so many stories of music helping people and helping heal and helping people bolster themselves up. And I think of Shostakovich with his symphony, yes. his Leningrad symphony. And that's a beautiful story. Um, yes. It was so wonderful how that really brought everyone together and it helped America to really form this strong alliance with Russia. Mm-hmm. But, then, but then during the Cold War, it was yes. like almost a 180. Do you want to kind of share a little bit sure. about that? I just find yes. that a fascinating story. Yes, it, it is extremely interesting. I'm glad you brought brought this up. Um, Shostakovich is, is a kind of important presence in American musical life um, at, a, at some critical moments in the history of the, of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, during World War II, when the United States and the Soviet Union were allies, uh, albeit somewhat uncomfortable allies, given the nature of the Soviet system, the U.S. government was trying to, uh, you know, figure out ways to fortify that alliance, the alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union uh, in, in the public mind and to get the, the American public to understand how important it was to support the Soviet Union and why we were supporting the Soviet Union. In 1942, the Shostakovich Seventh Symphony, the Leningrad Symphony, received its premiere in the United States. It was played by Toscanini and the NBC Symphony. The first performance was a broadcast performance in July of 1942 by the NBC Symphony. And I will add parenthetically that one can actually buy the CD of that performance so you can hear the actual performance itself, which is quite fascinating and moving if you're interested in these sorts of historical episodes. Mm-hmm. The premiere of the symphony, and there was there was actually considerable competition among conductors in the United States who wanted to be the the one who led this premiere. Uh, Toscanini won the competition, and I have some amusing exchanges in the book between Toscanini and uh, Stokowski, who wanted to also conduct it and kind of finished second in the competition. So this piece was premiered in in 1942. The piece was was composed, or much of it was composed, while Leningrad was under siege by the, uh, the, the German army. Shostakovich was in Leningrad and he was in a, he and many thousands of others were, were in a very dangerous, perilous situation. So it, there's a drama to the way the, the piece was actually composed. And it, I mean, it was premiered in the Soviet Union, uh, obviously first, but when it comes to the United States to be played, mm-hmm. the performance really generated an enormous amount of interest in the United States. And this is another sort of theme of my book, Dangerous Melodies. It, it, it shows how important classical music was at this time in American culture. Millions of people tuned in and listened to this broadcast, this afternoon broadcast in July of 1942. There was, and I quote this in the book, there were 
kind of various introductory remarks given talking about the, the, the how consequential this peace was, how meaningful the relationship, the alliance was between the United States and the Soviet Union, how we should stand with the Russian people. And um, the piece was then played and it was reviewed. And, and um, there was a great deal of commentary in the press on, on this premiere, on the piece, of, you know, the piece of music itself, on people's reaction to it. And then what followed after this summer premiere in July of 42, in the following fall, a couple of months later, the piece was played sort of live in concert all over the country by leading symphony orchestras. It was played in Boston, it was played in, in Washington, in Chicago, Cleveland, out on the West Coast, Los Angeles. And the piece just generated an enormous amount of um, interest and enthusiasm, even despite the fact that, that music critics were not wholly enamored of the piece, which if you listen to the piece and know it, it, you know, it's, it may not be the greatest piece of music ever written, but it's certainly an exciting and inspiring piece. Mm -hmm. Um, But at any rate, this Shostakovich became this really extraordinarily, in a sense, well-known and consequential figure because he had composed this piece in under heroic circumstances. And the U.S. government indeed used the piece to help fortify this alliance with, with the Soviet Union. Moving ahead several years, as you suggested, in 1949, Shostakovich would make his first visit to the United States at something called the Waldorf Conference. It was held in New York City at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And this was a, let's call it, it was, it was described as a peace conference. It was organized by leftist elements, both in the United States and in countries in Europe and certainly in the Soviet Union. And this conference, which was meant at least ostensibly to advance the cause of world peace, was really, frankly, by and large, an effort to kind of hold the United States responsible for for the Cold War. It gathered many, many people at the Waldorf uh, who sat on panels and had conversations and public discussions about the state of world politics. The foremost figure who attended the conference was none other than Dmitry Shostakovich. Imagine in the United States today a time when people would would be interested to hear what a composer, (laughs) to say nothing of a foreign composer, had to say about much of anything. That in itself, I think, bespeaks a rather different moment in uh, in time. Mm -hmm. Shostakovich uh, was, as I said, attended. He gave a variety of remarks, but the most important set of remarks he gave was sort of toward the end of this three-day conference where he spoke about the state of international relations, which is an odd thing for a man like Shostakovich to be speaking about. The speech was almost certainly written for him. Shostakovich did not compose this speech. It was written for him by Mm -hmm. uh, government officials in Moscow. And he, in this speech, he rather excoriated the United States for its sort of belligerence and, and militarism and for basically ginning up the Cold War and being responsible for it. He also spoke about the role of art and music in Russian society and praised the Soviet government for the quote-unquote guidance it offered to him and other composers (laughs) who at times had strayed from proper (laughs) compositional techniques. Scary. Yes. Aside from the people at the conference who, who related to Shostakovich in a sort of worshipful sense, in the larger society generally, and there was a great deal of commentary on this in newspapers and magazines on this conference, Shostakovich was seen as a rather 
a kind of pathetic figure who was doing the bidding of the Soviet government and was not there as an independent figure. He was he was labeled by one uh, person there as I think an obedient instrument of the state. I think was the phrase. And but the point is that Shostakovich, in in the life of Shostakovich and in his relationship with American uh, musical culture, I think one can see in a sense, the trajectory of the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. In 1942, he's this heroic figure as we're fortifying this alliance to defeat fascism. By 1949, obviously that alliance has has gone to pieces and there is a, uh, a cold war has emerged and Shostakovich comes over. And at that point, he is no longer the hero of 1942, but he is seen as the embodiment in, in a certain sense of all that is wrong with the Soviet Union. So in that sense, he, he is a, a figure on the American cultural and even political landscape. Mm-hmm. It is interesting because you don't see that kind of power with classical composers nowadays. Absolutely not. I, I don't think most Americans could name a classical composer these days. I don't think Americans, <laughs> and I say this in the book, and I, I, I don't say this, I, I'm not trying to be excessively critical here. It's just the state of affairs. Most Americans cannot name classical musicians. They cannot identify uh, conductors and so forth. We're just living in a different time. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason for that, as I argue in the book, is precisely because classical music over the course of the 20th century, starting with the First World War, became intertwined with uh, world politics. And the fact that it became so entangled in world politics gave classical music a a currency and a, and a consequential character uh, that it had never had before and, frankly, that it no longer has. Thus, the words of a man like Shostakovich would be listened to quite carefully and closely by large numbers of Americans. Uh, and, and a figure, say, even Toscanini plays a, an important role in the book mm. in, in Dangerous Melodies. Toscanini is a person who people uh, listen to, Arturo Toscanini, the, one of the great conductors of the first half of the 20th century, He's a, he plays a central role in American cultural life and, and more broadly in American political life because he is such an outspoken um, opponent, foe of uh, these sort of tyrannical regimes, specifically uh, Mussolini in uh, Italy and Hitler in Germany. So Toscanini becomes a really important figure in American cultural life in a way that is unimaginable today, right. for, for certainly for a classical musician. Yeah, yeah. I don't even see even pop stars or actors, like famous actors, even having influence like that. Yes, I, I would agree with you. Although people, you know, they sort of seem somewhat more inclined to, I guess, listen to what they have to say. Um, I don't, I confess, I mm-hmm. don't follow pop music very carefully. I, you know, I, obviously pop music is much more central in American in American life, the extent to which it has much right. Political impact, I'm, I'm not certain about that. But what is striking, what I can say with some certainty, is how you know, cla- figures in the classical music world really were important players on the national stage. I'm thinking of certainly Toscanini and then later on Leonard Bernstein right. becomes such a figure uh, in, a, you know, in the post-World War II period, becomes an important figure whose voice is one that people listen to mm-hmm. and that the government listens to and the government sort of yes. uh, wants to utilize Bernstein to uh, achieve certain um, political or diplomatic advantages. Yes. Yeah. Now you have a very unique 
take on this because you are an extremely accomplished musician as well as a respected historian. What do you think that we can learn from this as musicians or as uh, music lovers? Why, why is it important to learn about this and what can we take going forward from all of these things that you've been researching? Well, I think for one thing, I mean, this speaks in some sense to the, the, the meaningfulness of historical study. I, you know, I think if we're trying to understand what is happening, say, in the present with the relationship between art and politics, I, I think trying to understand uh, what preceded this, how these kinds of questions were debated and understood in an earlier period can help us sort of understand more fully the present can help us to situate the present and orient the present. And I think that's a good thing because many of these kinds of questions, while they have their own distinctive shape and contours currently, there there certainly are antecedents in them. And I think it is beneficial to us as a society to understand uh, something about that past. I think we can also even draw some inspiration from some of the figures that were, were active on the world stage previously, people I've looked at in my book, someone like Arturo Toscanini, who was such an important figure, uh, well, certainly an, an important musical figure, of course, but an important figure in America's relations on the world stage in the bold, courageous stances he took in speaking out against tyranny. I think there's something, frankly, inspirational about that. And, um, and if we're looking for and I don't know if we are, but if we're looking for models, if we're looking for ways to perhaps comport ourselves in the present, there are, in, in certain instances, people we can look to and say, hey, I, I admire the, the nobility with which that particular person historically responded to some of these challenges. Maybe there is something to be learned from that. And I, I might add that, that there, you know, there are some figures today who I think have behaved with considerable courage and nobility Russian figures. I'm thinking of this uh, ballerina, this great dancer, Olga uh, Smirnova. I, I believe that's the way to pronounce her name, but I might not. I might have it wrong. <laughs> she was the um, ballet dancer, superb ballet dancer from the Bolshoi, mm-hmm. who, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, decided that she could no longer tolerate operating as an artist in that system. Okay. And Smirnova left the Bolshoi went to the Dutch National Ballet in the Netherlands, and she's now dancing there. And that strikes me as an extraordinarily uh, admirable uh, decision, courageous one, a noble one. And in that sense, I don't know that she was thinking of this, but I'm happy to sort of put this construction on it. She she is following in the footsteps of a figure like uh, Arturo Toscanini. Mm -hmm. And leaving, leaving her country, leaving the Bolshoi, which, of course, is you know, one of the premier com- ballet companies in the world. And she thought, I cannot tolerate this. I'm going to go elsewhere. And indeed, she did. And I, I would imagine there is considerable risk involved for her or her family members. And she's done this anyway. So I, I, I think it's important to look to at least certain figures who are willing to. And I think there have been some others in Russia, mm-hmm. who have been willing to speak out against what is happening and and incur potentially grave risks in doing so. Yeah, it's very inspiring. Yes. So much to learn from other people. Yes. So Jonathan Rosenberg, thank you so much for being here. I truly enjoyed your book, Dangerous Maladies. I highly encourage anyone listening to go and find it and buy it or get it from your library and read it. There's so much to learn from these wonderful musicians and all of your great research. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. 
thank you very much for inviting me and thank you for the kind words about the book. I really have enjoyed speaking with you. I do think the issues we're talking about really are enormously consequential and I'm happy to have had the opportunity to discuss those things with you. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Musicians Versus the World. If you have enjoyed it, and I truly hope that you have, please help us out and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts or share it with your friends. Leaving a review really does help make our show easier to find so that we can reach more people, and I appreciate your help with that. And a very special thank you to Jonathan Rosenberg, Juilliard-trained musician and Harvard-trained historian. His book, Dangerous Melodies, Classical Music in America, From the Great War Through the Cold War, can be found in your local library or wherever you buy your books. I'll have links to that, as well as more information on Jonathan's research and the resources mentioned today in our show notes on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. In today's episode, you've heard piano piece in E minor by Ukrainian composer Nestor Nijinkivsky. You've also heard Fingal's Cave, composed by Felix Mendelssohn, performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra, and shared with a Creative Commons attribution license by IMSLP. As an interesting side note, since we've talked about politics and music today, Mendelssohn's music was banned by the Nazi party during World War II due to his Jewish heritage. In 1936, Toscanini traveled at his own expense to Palestine to conduct the Palestine Symphony, an orchestra made of Jewish refugee musicians. He stayed there for over a month and led the orchestra for free, and he made sure to include Mendelssohn's music in that programming. It's a beautiful chapter in Jonathan's book, and I highly encourage you to read it for yourself. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. And also, if you're more of a visual person and are interested in seeing our faces, you can now find us on YouTube on our Musicians vs. the World channel. If you need to reach us, we'd love to hear from you. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Or you can send us an email at info at Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and have a great day.